This is a recording of Framing the Book of Abraham, Presumptions and Paradigms by Stephen O. Smoot, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, read by Stephen O. Smoot. Abstract. The Book of Abraham continues to undergo scrutiny in both academic and polemical publications. The latest offering of substance in the latter category, Dan Vogel's Book of Abraham Apologetics, a review and critique, criticizes the work of those who argue for the antiquity and inspiration of the Book of Abraham and makes the sustained argument that the book is, instead, modern pseudepigrapha, written by a pious fraud, Joseph Smith, in the 19th century. Book of Abraham Apologetics lays out a particularly naturalistic approach to this text that works best only when certain metaphysical and methodological assumptions are taken for granted. This approach, however, as well as most of his arguments against the Book of Abraham's historicity, are severely undermined, both by Vogel's inability to properly assess the evidence and his metaphysical or ideological commitments. This review critiques Vogel's critique of Book of Abraham apologetics and offers an alternative to his questionable framing of the text and its interpretation. At first glance, the Book of Abraham would hardly appear to warrant much, if any, apprehension. After all, the book occupies a meager 14 pages, five chapters, in the current edition of the Pearl of Great Price, as canonized by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But looks, as the saying goes, can be deceiving, and popular prejudice notwithstanding, the Book of Abraham has proven both resilient and, in some ways, elusive. Hugh Nibley wisely warned us a generation ago that the road ahead for anybody wishing to assess the origin and nature of the Book of Abraham by academic means is daunting. Consider for a moment the scope and complexity of the materials with which the student must cope with if he would undertake a serious study of the Book of Abraham's authenticity, wrote Nibley in 1968. At the very least, he must be thoroughly familiar with, one, the texts of the Joseph Smith papyri, identified as belonging to the Book of the Dead, two, the content and nature of the mysterious Sensen fragment, three, the so-called Egyptian alphabet and grammar attributed to Joseph Smith, four, statements by and about Joseph Smith concerning the nature of the Book of Abraham and its origin, five, the original document of facsimile one with its accompanying hieroglyphic inscriptions, six, the text of the Book of Abraham itself in its various editions, seven, the three facsimiles as reproduced in various editions of the Pearl of Great Price, eight, Joseph Smith's explanation of the facsimiles, nine, the large and growing literature of ancient traditions and legends about Abraham in Hebrew, Aramaic, Arabic, Greek, Slavonic, etc. 10. The studies and opinions of modern scholars on all aspects of the Book of Abraham. Nibley was not being alarmist with this assessment. After all, the canonical text of the Book of Abraham purports to be Joseph Smith's inspired translation of a historical narrative attributed to the eponymous biblical patriarch and preserved on an ancient Egyptian papyrus. This means, at a minimum, that anybody wishing to pass judgment on the authenticity of the text is going to need some kind of training in, or at least exposure to, the following disciplines. 1. Syro-Levantine, Anatolian, and or Mesopotamian archaeology of the Middle Bronze Age, circa 2200 to 1600 BC in order to suitably consider the historical plausibility of the events depicted in the text. 2. The Hebrew Bible, in order to conduct a proper comparative analysis of the biblical material, 
specifically Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 20, chapter 11, verse 27 through chapter 12, verse 13, that overlaps with the text. 3. Egyptology, including its subdiscipline papyrology and specialization in the funerary literature of the Ptolemaic period, in order to assess the nature and content of the Joseph Smith papyri and the three facsimiles that accompany the text, as well as to evaluate the historical and cultural setting of the papyri. 4. Greco-Roman Judaism, particularly Egyptian Judaism, in order to evaluate the significance of the many extra-biblical texts relating to Abraham composed during this period. 5. 19th century Latter-day Saint history and theology, especially the theology of translation and the production of scripture in the religious worldview of Joseph Smith, in order to accurately understand how the prophet produced the book of Abraham and what he and contemporaries thought about the text. 6. Textual criticism, to accurately understand the authorship and transmission of the manuscripts related to Joseph Smith's Abrahamic project. As a consequence of this truly staggering state of affairs, an extensive bibliography on practically all facets of the Book of Abraham and the Joseph Smith papyri has emerged, especially after the 1960s. One would, of course, be excused from wanting to wade too deep into what can too easily turn into mystifying exercises in the worst kind of scholastic hair-splitting. Be that as it may, this is the intimidating reality awaiting anyone who wishes to summit the mountain of Book of Abraham scholarship, and for that matter, polemics. Those who wish to compartmentalize and limit their approach to the text by focusing on just one specific aspect, or who otherwise wish to approach the text from just one discipline or background, are welcome to do so. But they should be aware that their analysis, if unable to adequately account for each of these interlocking subcategories, is going to have limited explanatory power. In other words, if you decide you want to enter the debate, you ought to do some real homework. There is a large bibliography, and there are dozens of theories to master, not to mention a large body of evidence. To make matters worse, the Book of Abraham and the Joseph Smith papyri are part of a sectarian debate that shows no signs of abating. Passions then, as now, continue to run high, and for nearly 100 years it has, it has been standard operating procedure to dig for dirt on the background of anyone who enters the debate, and if one sides with the Mormons, the opponents have no qualms about bearing false witness. In brief, one simply cannot win playing this game, so if you want to address the issue in print, you need to know that the two sides in the dispute will never leave you alone. It is a life sentence with no possibility of parole. The Book of Abraham and Its Critics After Hugh Nibley, whose voluminous writing has laid much of the bedrock, for those who accept the historicity of the Book of Abraham and approach it as an ancient text, Undoubtedly, the most prominent Latter-day Saint scholar who has contributed to Book of Abraham scholarship is the Yale-trained Egyptologist John Gee, currently the William Gay Research Professor in the Department of Asian and Near Eastern Languages at Brigham Young University. Gee has been writing on the Book of Abraham since the early 1990s, and his most recent book-length treatment appeared in 2017. Besides Gee is the UCLA-trained Egyptologist Kerry Muelstein, a professor of ancient scripture at BYU, who, besides providing meaningful academic contributions to the conversation, has also been instrumental in popularizing Book of Abraham scholarship and apologetics for a general Latter-day Saint audience. These three scholars have unquestionably been the most influential in shaping the overall contours of the mainstream Latter-day Saint apologetic reaction to challenges made to the inspired authenticity, including the historicity, of the Book of Abraham. 
As of right now, the most determined and outspoken critics of the Book of Abraham and its orthodox apologists worthy of any serious consideration are Brian M. Hauglid, a retired BOU colleague of Guy Muehlstein, who now finds their work abhorrent, and Dan Vogel, an independent author and Joseph Smith biographer who has turned to the polemical contest surrounding the Book of Abraham after a several decades hiatus. It is Vogel's most recent offering, Book of Abraham Apologetics, A Review and Critique, that is the focus of this review. I should note that until very recently, I would have placed Robert K. Rittner, Rowe Professor of Egyptology at the University of Chicago, among those in the other corner. However, sadly, Rittner died July 25, 2021, after a years-long battle with kidney disease and leukemia. Even if he is no longer standing in the critic's corner, Rittner's critical works continue to be cited among those who, like Hauglid and Vogel, reject the historicity of the Book of Abraham. Even before jumping into the actual text of Book of Abraham Apologetics, something immediately stood out to me when I first picked up the volume. Three endorsements accompany Vogel's critique of apologetic efforts on behalf of the authenticity of the Book of Abraham. That itself is not remarkable. What is remarkable are the identities of two of the endorsers. The first endorsement comes from Susan Staker, an independent scholar of Latter-day Saint history, who believes this book will be welcomed more broadly for engaging a range of scholarly discussions about Joseph Smith's Egyptian project. Hers is followed by two additional endorsements, by one former and one current research associate with BYU's Neely Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship, John Christopher Thomas and Brian Hauglid, who both also speak highly of the book. Thomas praises Vogel for his painstaking research that, in his opinion, produces a compelling narrative of the emergence, history, and development of the Book of Abraham that is sure to become standard reading and part of the academic discourse. Hauglid applauds Vogel for his erudite, methodological, and thorough treatment of the subject. The book, a must-read, he continues, brings into high relief the difficulties of walking the razor's edge of faith and transparency. One might be forgiven for getting the impression that this is a polite way of saying the book is, or at least should be, effective at getting believers to question their faith in the authenticity of the text, especially since Vogel welcomes Hauglid as a compatriot and a useful foil against Guy and Muehlstein. In any case, the significance of two Maxwell Institute scholars endorsing what effectively amounts to an attack on Joseph Smith's prophetic credibility is perhaps best left alone for another time. If nothing else... Thomas's and Vogel's endorsements signal that the culture wars, academic and otherwise, surrounding the Book of Abraham are evolving in some unexpected ways, and leaves one suspicious of what this may portend for the ideological trajectory of a church-funded enterprise such as the Maxwell Institute. Whatever Vogel may lack in formal academic training, he makes up for it with a fairly impressive publication record, if only in terms of quantity, and a sort of rugged, autodidactic, historiographical moxie. Thanks to his YouTube channel and recent appearance on a popular anti-Mormon podcast, he also enjoys celebrity status among disaffected and ex-members of the church. Fogel is an ex-Latter-day Saint atheist who, in Book of Abraham Apologetics, like on previous occasions, voices his view that Joseph Smith was a sincere but deluded religious charlatan, a so-called pious fraud, to use the fashionable euphemism, and that his scriptural texts are the products of his imaginative and semi-consciously fraudulent engagement with his 19th century environment instead of divine revelation, which in Vogel's worldview doesn't exist. Indeed, Vogel has made his Weltanschauung as it relates to Joseph Smith's truth claims abundantly clear. To my mind, 
The most obvious solution is to suggest that Smith was a well-intended pious deceiver, or perhaps otherwise worded, a sincere fraud, someone who prevaricated for good reasons. Admittedly, the terms are not entirely satisfying. Nevertheless, pious connotes genuine religious conviction. While I apply fraud or deceiver only to describe some of Smith's activities, I believe that Smith believed he was called of God, yet occasionally engaged in fraudulent activities in order to preach God's word as effectively as possible. No biographer is completely free of bias. As is no doubt apparent, my inclination is to interpret any claim of the paranormal, precognition, clairvoyance, telekinesis, telepathy, as delusional or fraud. I do not claim that the supernatural does not exist, for it is impossible to prove a negative. I maintain only that the evidence upon which such claims rest is unconvincing to me. I believe that during his early career as, as, as a treasure seer, he was a charlatan, but came to believe that he was in fact called of God, and thereafter occasionally used deceit to bolster his religious message. In brief, Vogel rejects Joseph Smith's supernatural claims because there is simply no reliable proof for the existence of the supernatural. This actually makes his new book a fine example of exactly what we would expect from a metaphysically atheistic and naturalistic approach to a book of scripture that purports to be the inspired translation of the writings of an equally inspired ancient prophet. That is to say, Book of Abraham Apologetics approaches its subject with a paradigm that from the outset does not even allow for the possibility that the Book of Abraham is actually anything like what it claims to be. Vogel is certainly not alone in this. As Nibley observed long ago to great effect, it has been almost routine for the Book of Abraham's most ardent skeptics to begin with the assumption that Joseph Smith was incapable of translating an ancient text through Revelation because either Revelation isn't real or has ceased. Such a paradigm, unsurprisingly, has a tendency to prejudice the conclusions of the reader, who is asked to at least consider that the text just might be what it claims to be. I thus applaud Vogel for his forthrightness in candor when he frankly admits, at the outset, that he sees the Book of Abraham as a product of the 19th century, even if he then quite unbelievably tries to assure readers that his conclusions are based entirely on a dispassionate, balanced analysis of the relevant historical documents. I likewise commend Vogel, for at least making token gestures of attempting to refute the evidence for the historicity of the Book of Abraham that challenge his belief about the nature of the text, even if it is painfully obvious throughout Book of Abraham apologetics that he has little to none of the specialization mentioned above that is essential to crucially engage the issues and thereby offer a substantive verdict. On Objectivity Since he presents himself to his readers as a scholar who, unlike his apologist foes, offers a cool, even-tempered, no-nonsense analysis of the documentary record, it behooves us to ask whether Vogel's assumed naturalistic paradigm might in any way compromise his feigned objectivity, whether indeed our would-be dragoman leading us through this mess is up to the task of navigating the intricacies of the subject. Before we answer this, let us first turn to the sage observations of Kerry Muelstein, who with admirable frankness has voiced an important point self-evidently obvious to all but the most mulishly ideological. At the 2014 annual Fair Mormon Conference, and again at the same 2020 conference, Muelstein raised the clearly true point that all those who approach the Book of Abraham bring with them both general assumptions about how they think the world works, and assumptions specific to Joseph Smith's claims to inspired seership. Muelstein reminds us how important the beginning premise or the beginning assumption that people make is when they approach books that purport to be inspired scripture, and how often we do not realize this. 
He continues, I think this is a little bit akin to our assumptions about the validity of revelation as a source of knowledge. There are many people in the world, including Vogel, who are certain that revelation is not a valid source of knowledge. And beginning with that assumption, then anything having to do with the restoration of Joseph Smith as a prophet has to be discarded. They have to ignore any evidence that would support the notion that Joseph Smith was a prophet. And I've seen this happen. I've seen people who are critical of Joseph Smith when something comes up that kind of supports something he has translated through inspiration. Because these persons do not allow for the possibility that Joseph Smith could have translated an ancient document by revelation, they must explain things away because it does not fit in with their beginning assumption. Mulesin, on the other hand, not only allows for the possibility, but positively believes that Joseph Smith received revelation to translate ancient texts. And so he starts out with an assumption that the Book of Abraham and the Book of Mormon and, and anything else that we get from the restored gospel is true, and therefore attempts to harmonize evidence into that paradigm. He doesn't, however, feel the need to defend that paradigm. He feels that he wants to understand the evidence that he finds within the paradigm because to him it is a given that it is true. Muelstein freely acknowledges that there are others like Vogel who will assume that it's not true, and on these points we'll just have to agree to disagree, but we will understand one another better when we understand how, how our beginning assumptions color the way we filter all the evidence that we find. Whether he likes it or not, Vogel is doing in Book of Abraham Apologetics precisely what Muelstein described in his 2014 address. He is approaching the Book of Abraham with certain metaphysical assumptions that influence not only how he interprets the data, but that prejudices the conclusions he draws therefrom. To be sure, this does not mean that Vogel is automatically wrong when he concludes that the Book of Abraham and its claimed translator are 19th century frauds, pious or otherwise. It does mean, however, that Vogel cannot realistically expect us to believe that he is coming at this issue as a dispassionate, objective scholar who has no predetermined interest in whether Joseph Smith's claims are true or false. Metaphysically speaking, Vogel has just as much writing on the authenticity or inauthenticity of the Book of Abraham as Orthodox Latter-day Saints do. By the evidence of his own admission, as seen above, it is dishonest in the extreme for Vogel to pretend otherwise. Vogel's Argument Vogel's main argument offered in Book of Abraham Apologetics is effectively articulated in his opening chapter. Here he makes the following case for the composition of the English text of the Book of Abraham. After dictating three verses of the Book of Abraham to William W. Phelps, probably in early 1835, Smith began immediately to work on his alphabets and bound grammar of the Egyptian language. Then, the following November, he dictated 48 verses of Abraham to Frederick G. Williams and Warren Parrish. Recognizing that the Parrish and Williams documents are the original records of Smith's dictation of Abraham and that they date to November 1835, means the theory that the alphabets and bound grammar were created after the translation must be abandoned. Instead, these documents, the Joseph Smith Egyptian papers relating to the Egyptian language, should be seen as Smith's preliminary efforts to understand his newly acquired papyri and to convince followers that his translation was derived from the papyri. The problem this presents for those who believe the Book of Abraham is a translation of an ancient text is simple. First, the papyri fragments allegedly believed by Joseph Smith to be the source of the translation of the Book of Abraham were recovered in the 1960s, and the Egyptian text thereon, when translated, bears no resemblance to the English text of the Book of Abraham. And second, the Egyptian language documents discussed below failed to convey an accurate understanding of the Egyptian language. We can determine the first point, according to Vogel, thanks to the hieratic characters in the margins of the Kirtland-era Book of Abraham manuscripts, 
and the second because Joseph Smith was, Vogel alleges, the primary author of the Egyptian language documents. In short, in Vogel's formulation, Joseph Smith fails on both counts as a translator of Egyptian. He misidentified what was on the papyri he acquired, and he misunderstood how the Egyptian language actually works. This is why Vogel does not feel it necessary to turn to any other discipline to assess the authenticity of the Book of Abraham than his preferred area, Category 6 in my articulation above. I believe that what is required in any treatment of the Book of Abraham is not fluency in hieroglyphics or a belief in Joseph Smith's prophetic calling, but a firm, clear-headed understanding of the methods of history and of the relevant 19th century historical sources. Anything else is counterproductive. It seems, however, that Vogel doesn't actually believe this, because a sizable portion of Book of Abraham apologetics is dedicated to neutralizing arguments for the historicity of the Book of Abraham from those who affirm it is a translation of an ancient text. If Vogel's theory for the composition of the Book of Abraham and the text's relationship to both the surviving papyri fragments and the Egyptian language documents is as decisive as he claims, we cannot help but wonder why he must go to such lengths to disarm the evidence for historicity. In any case, since Vogel insists that knowledge of ancient languages is not needed to render confident judgment on the Book of Abraham, throughout this review I will oblige him by not bothering to provide transliterations or translations of the ancient languages I utilize unless otherwise necessary. The second component of Vogel's argument against the Book of Abraham is to diffuse the evidence for the text's historicity by providing modern sources from which Joseph Smith could have derived the contents, themes, and ideas of the text. In addition to the usual suspects, such as Adam Clark and Thomas Dick, Vogel points to other 19th century sources, no matter how obscure, to contend that the so-called unique elements in the Book of Abraham were all known to Joseph Smith's contemporaries. Vogel wisely cautions that he is not arguing that Smith knowingly plagiarized these sources, but simply that Smith had, ar had arrived at similar narrative, but through a different process. The net result is that Smith's contemporaries had access to the same Jewish, Christian, and Muslim traditions about Abraham, and that these traditions were widely known in Smith's day, and that this refutes claims of antiquity. With the basic thrust of Vogel's main contention in mind, let us proceed to examine some of the key arguments put forth in Book of Abraham Apologetics. This review does not pretend to be an exhaustive response to all of Vogel's arguments, but hopefully I will be able to show how, in some important ways, Vogel's arguments are either questionable, insufficient, or simply erroneous. I myself do not profess to have mastery over all aspects of the Book of Abraham. Those readers interested in diving deeper into the issues discussed in this review are encouraged to consult the bibliography collected on the Pearl of Great Price Central website. Most of the material from Nibley, Gee, and Muelstein that Vogel argues against in Book of Abraham Apologetics are online and cataloged in the Pearl of Great Price Central bibliography and readers are likewise encouraged to engage these works on their own as they assess their own position on the Book of Abraham. The Kirtland Egyptian Papers and the Book of Abraham The centerpiece of Vogel's contention that the Book of Abraham is a modern pseudepigraphon is the motley collection of manuscripts commonly classified as the Kirtland Egyptian Papers, the Joseph Smith Egyptian Papers, or more recently, the Egyptian language documents. This corpus can broadly be grouped into the following categories. One, several manuscripts on which associates of Joseph Smith copied Egyptian characters, two, three manuscripts containing attempts to decipher the Egyptian writing system called the Egyptian alphabet documents, three, a document associated with the Egyptian alphabet documents called the Egyptian counting document that contains a system of counting, and four, 
a manufactured book of ruled paper into which early Latter-day Saint scribes William W. Phelps and Warren Parrish inscribed a grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language. The Egyptian language documents are textually interdependent. The Egyptian alphabet documents contain non-Roman characters, many of which were copied from the papyri, with accompanying transliterations and definitions. Characters, transliterations, and definitions from the Egyptian alphabet documents were later copied into the grammar and alphabet volume. Controversy has swirled around these documents for over five decades, since the extent of Joseph Smith's involvement in the creation of these manuscripts is unknown. More than just that, actually, almost every aspect of these documents is disputed. Their authorship, their date, their purpose, their relationship with the Book of Abraham, their relationship with the Joseph Smith papyri, their relationship with each other, what the documents are or were intended to be, and even whether the documents form a discrete or coherent group. From the looks of it, the Egyptian language documents are little more than a confounding historical oddity that only a small cadre of archivists and historians would find meaningful, hardly the sort of thing to get worked up over. Why is it then that anti-Mormons have long salivated over these manuscripts? Because despite how well-intended they may have been, these attempts are considered by modern Egyptologists, both Latter-day Saints and others, to be of no actual value in understanding Egyptian. The grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language, Gale, documents, called the bound grammar throughout Book of Abraham Apologetics, has particularly proven to be a lightning rod since it is commonly believed that the linguistic hocus-pocus of the Gale is all that is needed to safely demonstrate Joseph Smith's inability to understand Egyptian. To properly indict Joseph Smith, Vogel attributes the entirety of the Kirtland-era Egyptian language corpus to the prophet. He specifically goes to great pains to attribute authorship of the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language, Gale, to Joseph Smith since the imaginative way the Egyptian language is understood in this text is indeed damning for the Book of Abraham if the latter was derived from the former. Of course, Vogel has no other prosecutorial option if he wants his charges to stick. If enough reasonable doubt can be cast on the claim that Joseph Smith was the primary author of the Gale, then one of Vogel's most important arguments in Book of Abraham apologetics unravels. For Vogel's naturalistic claims about the Book of Abraham to work, he needs Joseph Smith to be the principal instigator behind the Egyptian language documents. So what evidence exactly does Vogel have to attribute authorship of the Gale to Joseph Smith? The first is this entry from Joseph Smith's history. The remainder of this month, July 1835, I was continually engaged in translating an alphabet to the Book of Abraham and arranging a grammar of the Egyptian language as practiced by the ancients. Although dated July 1835 and written in the first person, this entry, in fact, is a retrospective account that was composed by scribe Willard Richards no earlier than mid-September 1843. Vogel is aware of this and so postulates that he probably composed the July 1835 account with the help of Smith and or Phelps, the latter of who also worked on Smith's history. He indeed may have consulted Joseph for this entry, or he may have only consulted Phelps who is the other, stronger in my judgment, candidate for the authorship of the Gale, and who by late 1843 had assumed the mantle of ghostwriter for the prophet. So while this entry from Joseph Smith's history is evidence of contemporary attribution of the Gale to Joseph, it is only secondary evidence for such, as it could just as well be Phelps' own projection of the summer 1835 efforts onto Joseph. It is important to remember that although various people acted as scribe to Joseph Smith, they were, they were independent people and had their own independent thoughts. Not everything written by one of Joseph Smith's scribes came from the mind of Joseph Smith, even during the time period when they served as Joseph Smith's scribes. 
Bogle next offers Joseph Smith's October 1, 1835 journal entry as evidence that phase two of the work on the Gale resumed under the prophet after a brief lapse. The entry reads, October 1, 1835, this afternoon labored on the Egyptian alphabet in company with brothers O. Cowdery and W. W. Phelps. The system of astronomy was unfolded. Vogel immediately jumps to the conclusion that this must be referring to the astronomical content of the Gale, which in the last seven chapters describes a hierarchy of stars and planets. A more parsimonious explanation for the October 1, 1835 journal entry, however, is that on this day Joseph was working, laboring, on the Egyptian alphabet documents, not the Gale. Unlike the Gale, this group of Egyptian language documents, labeled A, B, and C, in Joseph Smith papers, Revelations and Translations 4, actually does contain not only the handwriting of Phelps, but actually that of Cowdery and the Prophet. The three versions are clear, clearly related. They may all be derived from an earlier version, or, more likely, they may have been created simultaneously, with Joseph, Cowdery, and Phelps consulting with one another or referring to each other's manuscripts. Joseph, Cowdery, and Phelps working together on the Egyptian alphabet texts one breezy October afternoon is a far more likely scenario than the convoluted one Vogel offers. None of this is to deny that Joseph Smith had any involvement whatsoever with the composition of the Kirtlandary Egyptian language documents. His handwriting appears in at least one of the Egyptian alphabet manuscripts, and his history could be used to show his involvement in the production of the Gale in some undeterminable capacity. It is, rather, to stress two things. First, the evidence for Joseph Smith's involvement in the composition of the Gale, specifically, is tenuous. And second, Vogel has ramrodded the facts into a specific predetermined conclusion about the composition of the Book of Abraham in its relationship with the Kirtlandary Egyptian language documents. In fact, the situation is far more uncertain than Vogel lets on. It is unclear when in 1835 Joseph Smith began creating the existing Book of Abraham manuscripts or what relationship the Book of Abraham manuscripts have to the Egyptian language documents. While some of the documents are clearly textually dependent upon others, there is also evidence of overlapping creation, false starts, and building upon previous work. The sequence of the creation of the Kirtland era Book of Abraham manuscript and the various manuscripts of the Egyptian language project is unknown. Considerable overlap of themes exists between the Book of Abraham and the Egyptian language documents. Both have information concerning Abraham, Egypt, the creation, Adam and Eve, Eden, astronomy, and Kolob, and other stars, among other topics. Some evidence indicates that material from the grammar and alphabet volume was incorporated into at least one portion of the Book of Abraham text in Kirtland, but most of the Book of Abraham is not textually dependent on any of the extant Egyptian language documents. The inverse is also true. Most of the content in the Egyptian language documents is independent of the Book of Abraham. Because of this, Vogel's overall discussion of the significance of the Egyptian language documents in Book of Abraham apologetics, including his exposition on how the content of the Gale and other related documents must have informed the worldview of Joseph Smith, is of limited value. The Lost Papyrus Theory and the Catalyst Theories The 2014 Gospel Topics essay, Translation and Historicity of the Book of Abraham, forthrightly notes how the surviving fragments of the Joseph Smith papyri do not render the English text of the Book of Abraham when translated. None of the characters on the papyrus fragments mention Abraham's name or any of the events recorded in the Book of Abraham, the essay acknowledges. Mormon and non-Mormon Egyptologists agree that the characters on the fragments do not match the translation given in the Book of Abraham. Though there is not unanimity, even among non-Mormon scholars, about the proper interpretation of the vignettes on these fragments. 
Scholars have identified the papyrus fragments as parts of standard funerary texts that were deposited with, with mummified bodies. These fragments date to between the 3rd century BCE and the 1st century CE, long after Abraham lived. Understandably, this incongruence is simply too good for critics of Joseph Smith to pass up. As Nibley so memorably expressed it back in 1975, some people were endlessly dining into the ears of the public that what was written on a small and battered strip of papyrus proved beyond a doubt that Joseph Smith was a fraud because he thought that it contained the Book of Abraham, whereas it contained nothing of the sort. How, then, does the Church account for this discrepancy? The essay offers two options. It is likely futile to assess Joseph Smith's ability to translate papyri when we now have only a fraction of the papyri he had in his possession. Eyewitnesses spoke of a long roll or multiple rolls of papyrus. Since only fragments survived, it is likely that much of the papyri accessible to Joseph when he translated the Book of Abraham is not among these fragments. The loss of a significant portion of the papyri means the relationship of the papyri to the published text cannot be settled conclusively to reference, by reference to the papyri. Alternatively, Joseph's study of the papyri may have led him to a revelation about the key events and teachings in the life of Abraham, much as he had earlier received a revelation about the life of Moses while studying the Bible. This view assumes a broader definition of the words translator and translation. According to this view, Joseph's translation was not a literal rendering of the papyri as a conventional translation would be. Rather, the physical artifacts provided an occasion for meditation, reflection, and revelation. They catalyzed a process whereby God gave to Joseph Smith a revelation about the life of Abraham, even if that revelation did not directly correlate to the characters on the papyri. These two explanations have come to be commonly called the missing papyrus theory and the catalyst theory, respectively. The first theory finds perhaps its most outspoken advocate in John Gee, whereas the second enjoys support among influential Latter-day Saint thinkers such as Terrell Givens. Both theories have their strengths and weaknesses, and both are, in my judgment, viable. But for none of the theories is the evidence as neat or as compelling as one might wish, and so it is wise, at this point, not to become too particularly dogmatic. In order to erase any vestiges of hope for those who wish to affirm the, histor the historicity and inspiration of the Book of Abraham, Fogel critiques both the missing papyrus theory and the catalyst theory in the penultimate chapter of Book of Abraham Apologetics. There is no reasonable or compelling evidence to support the theory that the Book of Abraham's English text came from a long roll of papyrus that is now missing, Vogel announces. Furthermore, appeals to a catalyst theory of the Book of Abraham, including attempts to redefine the term translate, fail to account satisfactorily for the text's own references to facsimile 1 and to Smith's own use of the term translate in its conventional meaning. The Mormons are without a prayer. The only honest option our authority urges is to admit that the Book of Abraham is a 19th century pseudepigraphon. But is the situation really as dire for the faithful as Vogel makes it out to be? Red Ink Vogel begins his reputation of the missing papyrus theory by attacking its weakest argument that informed advocates of the theory no longer use. In the first edition of The Message of the Joseph Smith Papyri, Nibley referenced the following entry in the history of the Church as evidence that the Book of Breathings fragments recovered in 1967 were not the source of the Book of Abraham. The record of Abraham and Joseph found with the mummies is beautifully written upon papyrus with black and in a small part red ink or paint in perfect preservation. This description, supposedly from Joseph Smith, as it appears in History of the Church, was to nibbly evidence that the prophet did not consider Papyrus Joseph Smith 10 and 11 the source of the Book of Abraham. As Vogel correctly points out, however, the source actually comes from Oliver Cowdery, not Joseph Smith, 
and was describing the papyri generally, not strictly the supposed source of the Book of Abraham. Vogel did not need to cite the critical author H. Michael Marquardt to inform us of this, since in the second edition of the message of the Joseph Smith papyri, he himself made this clear. It is now known that the person who identified the papyri as having red ink was Oliver Cowdery rather than Joseph Smith, and he may have been referring to different papyrus than the one Nibley thought he was. Still, if Vogel's intention here was to score an easy point against Nibley, then he succeeded admirably. Eyewitness Testimony Of great importance for the missing papyrus theory are the testimonies left by eyewitnesses who viewed the papyri in the 19th century. Vogel recognizes this as much as Guy and Muelstein do, and so he devotes a considerable portion of this chapter attempting to negate or downplay the eyewitness testimony, which appears to indicate rather strongly both that a sizable portion of papyrus is missing and that the source believed to be the Book of Abraham was contained on the missing portion. Since this matter essentially boils down to a matter of interpretation, it strikes me as rather unnecessary, even pedantic, in this review to assess each of Vogel's claims individually. Readers are welcome to gauge the competing interpretations of the historical sources offered by Muelstein and Vogel for themselves. But I do feel it necessary to make one observation on Vogel's overall methodological habits when it comes to interpreting the relevant sources. Vogel displays an, un an unmistakable kind of presentistic hubris in his efforts to downplay the significance of the eyewitness testimony for the missing papyrus theory. A major problem Vogel has with Muelstein's reading of the historical documents is that none of the eyewitnesses possessed the knowledge necessary to verify a long scroll theory. Most witnesses simply expressed an assumption based on Smith's identification of the papyri. What Vogel seems to forget here is that he is not the eyewitness in all of this, and it doesn't require any sort of esoteric knowledge or specialized academic training for 19th century frontier rustics to tell the difference between a long roll of manuscript, see below, and fragments of papyrus mounted under glass. Neither does it require an assumption for an eyewitness to report what Joseph Smith or others related about the contents of this or that portion of the papyri. To be fair, Vogel does make the valid point that some of the eyewitnesses do identify the mounted fragments and not the long roll as being the source of the Book of Abraham, or at least they report Joseph Smith as indicating this. But this merely complicates the missing papyrus theory. It does not outright refute it, as Vogel insists. The way Vogel handles the testimony of Charlotte Haven is instructive on this point. Her account of viewing the papyri has been scrutinized by both advocates and opponents of the missing papyrus theory because of its potential ramifications for identifying the source of the Book of Abraham. Below is the relevant portion of Haven's testimony in full. From there we called on Joseph's mother, passing the site of the Nauvoo House, a spacious hotel, the first floor only laid. It is like the temple in being erected on the tithe system, and when finished will surpass in splendor any hotel in the state. Here Joseph and his heirs for generations are to have apartments free of expense, and they think the crowned heads of Europe will rusticate beneath its roof. Madam Smith's residence is a long house very near her son's. She opened the door and received us cordially. She is a motherly kind of woman about sixty years. She receives a little pittance by exhibiting the mummies to strangers. When we asked to see them, she lit a candle and conducted us up a narrow, short stairway to a low, dark room under the roof. On one side were standing half a dozen mummies, to whom she introduced us, King Onitas and his royal household, one she did not know. Then she took up what seemed to be a club wrapped in a dark cloth, and said, This is the leg of Pharaoh's daughter, the one that saved Moses. 
Repressing a smile, I looked from the mummies to the old lady, but could detect nothing but earnestness and sincerity on her countenance. Then she turned to a long table, set her candlestick down, and opened a long roll of manuscript, saying it was the writings of Abraham and Isaac, written in Hebrew and Sanskrit. And she read several minutes from it as if it were English. It sounded very much like passages from the Old Testament, and it might have been for anything we knew. But she said she read it through the inspiration of her son Joseph, in whom she seemed to have perfect confidence. Then in the same way, she interpreted to us hieroglyphics from another role. One was Mother Eve being tempted by the serpent, who, the serpent I mean, was standing on the tip of his tail, with which his two legs formed a tripod, and had his head in Eve's ear. I said, but serpents don't have legs. They did before the fall, she asserted with perfect confidence. The judge slipped a coin into her hand, which she received smilingly, with a pleasant, come again, and we bade her goodbye. Vogel's objection to Muelstein's and Gies' interpretation of this account are equal parts special pleading and ideologically motivated. Haven reports that Lucy Smith explicitly identified the long roll of manuscript as the writings of Abraham and Isaac, to which Vogel merely shrugs off by saying she only identified it as such and not explicitly as the source of the published book of Abraham. But what else could the prophet's mother have possibly meant other than the source of the book of Abraham with her comment that the long roll contained the writings of Abraham? Vogel's objection here is simply a desperate attempt to make Haven's testimony mean something other than what it plainly means. Like Christopher Smith before him, Vogel also objects that Haven could merely have been describing the two-foot scroll containing the end section of Hor's Book of Breathings. The matter basically boils down to whether it is plausible that a casual observer could consider two feet of papyrus a long roll. It is of course possible, but it is not a foregone conclusion that this is an example of a witness describing the fragments as if they were complete scrolls, as Vogel pretends. Even Smith, who is skeptical of the missing papyrus theory and argues against it, concedes that since two feet for the interior portion of the horror scroll is hardly long by Egyptological standards, Haven's report seems to imply the presence of another text on the scroll following the document of breathing. Just so, that Vogel obstinately refuses to acknowledge as even possible what is obvious from the Haven account obliges me to conclude that he is motivated not by careful historical consideration, but rather by a desire to neuter the arguments of his apologist interlocutors. The Length of the Horse Scroll Besides the testimony of eyewitnesses who viewed the papyri, is there any other way to determine the amount of material originally possessed by Joseph Smith? In 2007, Guy attempted to answer the question of how long the Joseph Smith papyri originally were with a mathematical formula used by Egyptologists to calculate the length of papyri scrolls. Guy's initial calculations yielded an estimated 1,250.5 centimeters, or 41 feet, of missing papyrus from the scroll of Hor. Guy's initial findings were met with criticism by Andrew Cook and Christopher Smith not long after his 2007 publication. They argued that no more than 56 centimeters of papyrus can be missing from the scroll's interior a number that, obviously, is both far less than Guy's estimate and precludes the possibility of a hypothetical missing book of Abraham text to appear on the Horus scroll. What resulted was a back-and-forth between Guy and Cook that resulted in Guy revising his math and coming up with a new estimate, about 314 centimeters, which is about 10 feet, 3.5 inches, give or take a foot. Vogel, predictably, sides with Cook and Smith on the question of mathematically determining the amount of missing papyrus from the Horus scroll. 
This means, he writes, that there was an intact roll of about four inches wide and about two feet long that Gies and Muelstein's eyewitnesses saw and identified with the Book of Abraham. I freely confess that I do not have the mathematical acumen to independently determine who is right or wrong in this matter. From the fact that he provides no actual compelling reason to prefer Cook and Smith's results over Gies, neither, it appears, does Vogel. What I can say, however, is that last year, Eshbal Retzon and Nahum Dershowitz published a study which found that Though theoretically reasonable, many practical problems interfere with any attempt to determine the length of ancient scrolls mathematically, with the unfortunate result that highly significant errors are quite frequent, and past uses of this approach should be re-evaluated. When it comes to Cook and Smith's methodology, which Vogel assures us is superior to Gies, these two authorities conclude that the results derived from their method are no better than eyeballing. This does not prove Cook and Smith are wrong and Gia is therefore correct, but it does put something of a damper on our confidence in their results, especially since Ratzon and Dershowitz have no vested interest that I can detect in how much missing papyrus there might be from the horror scroll. It would appear, then, that caution and further study seem prudent when it comes to attempting to determine the length of the Joseph Smith papyri with heretofore standard mathematical formula. Facsimile 1. Critics of the missing papyrus theory are quick to point out that the text of the Book of Abraham actually mentions facsimile 1. And it came to pass that the priests laid violence upon me, that they might slay me also, as they did those virgins upon this altar. And that you may have a knowledge of this altar, I will refer you to the representation at the commencement of this record. That you may have an understanding of these gods, I have given you the fashion of them in the figures at the beginning. Which manner of figures is called by the Chaldeans Ralenos? which signifies hieroglyphics. Vogel contends that these statements regarding facsimile 1 create a serious problem for the long scroll theory. Indeed, it is difficult to explain how the Book of Abraham can refer to the opening vignettes of the Book of Breathings as the commencement of this record. In fact, although this claim has been popular with anti-Mormons since the 1960s, it actually isn't very hard to account for these verses with the missing papyrus theory. Muelstein has offered a perfectly plausible explanation, which Vogel ignores. But more importantly, Vogel finds himself at odds with every other text critic who has looked at the Book of Abraham manuscripts and who agree that the damning lines from verses 12 and 14 are interlinear insertions in the Williams manuscript and not original. Rather than being interlinear insertions, Vogel claims that there is a general upward slant to all of Williams's lines on the first page of the manuscript, especially at the end of paragraphs, and therefore verse 12 was inserted into the space created by an upward angle of the previous line. A careful look at the first page of the Williams manuscript, however, tends to refute Vogel's claims. Only the third and fourth paragraphs on that page might, to an appreciable degree, be described as slanting upwards, but certainly not all of Williams' lines as Vogel claims. Crucially, the lines immediately before and after verse 12 do not appear to slant. The text, I will refer you to the representation that is at the, does, does slant upward, but even if we grant that this was because of Williams' scribal habit, and not because the line is an insertion, it does not explain why commencement of this record is directly underneath and does not begin at the left margin of the next line. Vogel's claim that cutting out the entire reference to the sacrificial altar does not work because doing so would create too much space between paragraphs, which was not William's practice, is also refuted by looking at the preceding paragraph breaks, which do in fact tend to leave considerable space between the end of the line and the end of the page. The first and third paragraph breaks, for example, occur before halfway down the line. The second and sixth paragraph breaks end about halfway down the line, 
and the fourth paragraph ends about three-fourths down the line. If we suppose a fifth paragraph ending at knowledge of this altar on lines 36 to 37, it would in fact align very nicely with the first, second, third, and sixth paragraph endings. What's more, the breaks at paragraphs one and arguably two occur mid-sentence in William's text, posing no problem for the fact that the likely break at the fifth paragraph as postulated above also occurs mid-sentence. Fogel has a better argument for why verse 14 may not be an interlinear insertion. He observes that this page, like the previous one, is unruled, so there is no top margin that would have been left blank. He also notes that page 4 of the Williams manuscript also begins without observing the right margin. What Vogel does not mention, however, is that page 4 of Williams manuscript also ends without observing the left margin, as shown in figure 3, effectively making the entire page marginless. The first two lines and the last seven lines basically run from the left to the right edges of the page. The same is not true for page 2, where the first four lines of verse 14 begin left of the margin that runs uniformly until the end of the page. Williams began and ended page 4 by following the same margins except for the middle of the page where he indented right to make room for marginal characters. One could argue that the difference in indentation on pages 2 and 4 is because of the placement of the marginal characters. A cursory glance at the manuscript would seem to bear this out. Even so, if one were to follow Vogel's arguments, one would be hard-pressed to explain the cramped spacing of the first line on page 2, which does not seem to appear at the top of the other three pages of William's manuscript. This, along with the fact that verse 12 almost certainly is not original, satisfies me that the content and spacing of this paragraph at the top of page 2, along with similar revisions to the line on the bottom of the previous page, suggests that this paragraph was inserted. He is absolutely correct that the Book of Abraham actually reads smoothly without these additions. As revised to omit the lines in question, the text of Abraham 1, verses 12-15, from William's manuscript, would read, And that you may have a knowledge of this altar, it was made after the form of a bedstead, such as was had among the Chaldeans. And it stood before the gods Elkanah, Zibnah, Mamakra, and also a god like unto that of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And as they lifted up their hands upon me, that they might offer me up, Whatever the ultimate implications this may have for the missing papyrus theory, the relationship between the text in facsimile 1, or what was assumed by Joseph or his clerks to be the source of the Book of Abraham, remains to be fully explored. For now, it is enough to say that Vogel's appeal to Abraham chapter 1, verses 12-14, in his attempt to refute the missing papyrus theory, is not decisive. Joseph Smith, Translator Extraordinaire If the missing papyrus theory does not suit Vogel, what about the so-called catalyst theory, or the theory that Joseph Smith's engagement with the Egyptian papyri catalyzed a revelatory experience by which he revealed the Book of Abraham text. As mentioned previously, the two most recent advocates for this theory are Terrell Givens and Samuel Brown. As ingenious as they might be, Vogel is not impressed with the attempt to broaden the semantic range of translation in Joseph Smith's theological lexicon. He is specifically critical of Givens, whose recent articulation of the catalyst theory Vogel strenuously critiques. Did Smith truly believe, mistakenly, that his inspired dictation of the, of the Abraham text came from the papyrus, he asks? The text itself references facsimile one twice, which suggests that Smith believed he was translating in the conventional sense and not receiving revelation. Vogel doubles down on this claim by appealing to the Egyptian language documents, all of which Vogel attributes as being the mental products of the prophet. For Vogel, the culinary Egyptian papers tell us Smith's definition of translation was conventional and straightforward. 
One page later, Vogel insists that Joseph Smith's translation projects must have been conventional because of the eyewitness testimony that describes Smith reading the translation from the seer stone. Vogel concludes by mentioning the prophet's translation or revision of the Bible as yet further evidence that there is no indication that he used translation in any sense different from the conventional sense. There is so much question begging packed into these few short pages of Book of Abraham Apologetics that it is truly difficult to know where to begin to start unpacking all of it. In a spectacular display of clairvoyance, Vogel confidently proclaims exactly what Joseph Smith must have been thinking and intending with his use of the word translation to describe his textual compositions. Unfortunately for him, though, Vogel's pronouncements on the supposed conventional banality of the prophet's use of translation could not come at a more awkward moment, since the inquisitive reader is now greatly benefited by last year's producing ancient scripture, which demonstrates beyond controversy just how multifaceted and at times unreservedly idiosyncratic the prophet's use of translation truly was. Let's begin with the Book of Abraham, which Vogel is adamant is Joseph Smith's bungled conventional rendering of the papyri fragments now housed safely in church archives in Salt Lake City. Even if we grant Vogel's highly dubious dogma that the Kirtland-era Egyptian language documents are exclusively the fruit of the prophet's wild linguistic forays, we must ask how exactly Joseph and his clerks imagined he could understand Egyptian in the first place. By consulting the work of the European savants, perhaps? Out of the question, as both the prophet's defenders and critics agree. It would have been impossible for any American scholar to know enough about Egyptian inscriptions to read them before the publication of Champollion's grammar, insisted the skeptical James Henry Breasted in 1912. American universities have never until recently given such studies any attention. It will be seen, then, that if Joseph Smith could read ancient Egyptian writing, his ability to do so had no connection with the decipherment of hieroglyphics by European scholars. Then how? We need not resort to any Vogelian augury to answer this question, as the documentary record provides more than enough clues to bolster our confidence. Joseph the seer saw these records, and by the revelation of Jesus Christ could translate these records, recorded John Whitmer in his important history, which, when all translated, will be a pleasing history and of great value to the saints. Warren Parrish, an intimate in the prophet's labor on the Egyptian papyri, recounted after his disaffection how he penned down the translation of the Egyptian hieroglyphics as Joseph claimed to receive it by direct inspiration from heaven. And what of the seer stone? The Cleveland Whig reported in the summer of 1835 on being credibly informed by a source close to him, apparently Frederick G. Williams, that Joe has examined the papyrus through his spectacles. The prophet's mother rehearsed something similar to visitors shortly after her son's death. She said, reports our informant, that when Joseph was reading the papyrus, he closed his eyes and held a hat over his face, and that the revelation came to him, and that where the papyrus was torn, he could read the parts that were destroyed equally as well as those that were there, and that scribe sat by him writing as he expounded. This agrees with William West, who in 1837 described a quantity of records written on papyrus in Egyptian hieroglyphics in the possession of Joseph Smith. These records were torn by being taken from the roll of embalming salve that which contained them, and some parts entirely lost. But Smith is to translate the whole by divine inspiration, and that which is lost, like Nebuchadnezzar's dream, can be interpreted, as well as that which is preserved." And a, large and a larger volume than the Bible will be required to contain them. Frederick G. Mather's late account converges well with the contemporary reports in his remark that Joe Smith translated the characters on the roll, being favored with a special revelation whenever any of the characters were missing by reason of mutilation of the roll. 
that is supposed to be the conventional or straightforward way of dealing with lacunae in a manuscript when attempting to translate an ancient text? But where these accounts are hearsay, we have the testimony of no less than one of the men who assisted in setting the type for the printing of the first piece of the Book of Abraham, and who was much edified with the Prophet's ability to translate through the Urim and Thummim ancient records and hieroglyphics as old as Abraham or Adam. Another one of Joseph's Nauvoo clerks, Howard Corey, reminisced to his daughter of having heard him prophesy many things that have already come to pass, and, what's more, distinctly remembered having also seen him translate by the seer's stone. Translate what? Surely neither the Book of Mormon nor the Bible, which were completed long before Corey began clerking for the prophet, or before he had even joined the church, for that matter, in the spring of 1840. The Kinderhook plates, perhaps, also impossible, as Corey was finishing a mission in the eastern United States at the time of the incident, early May 1843. And furthermore, we can confidently say that Joseph attempted a secular, not a revelatory translation of those notorious fakes. This leaves only a portion of the Book of Abraham, or perhaps some other heretofore unknown Nauvoo-era revelation that the prophet received through his seer stone. But Corey recalled both hearing Joseph prophesy and seeing him translate with the seer stone, strongly suggesting that he meant the book of Abraham with this description. From friendly and hostile sources, then, we see a picture of Joseph Smith not scrabbling through lexica and grammars to give us the English text of the book of Abraham, which any conventional translation would demand, but instead of him tapping into the same prophetic reserve with which he produced the Book of Mormon. The decipherment of the Egyptian language was newly underway when Joseph Smith began to study the papyri, and there is no evidence that he was acquainted with the progress that had been made, write Jensen and Halglid. He, he was certainly unequipped to translate the scrolls as a scholar would. The translation of the Book of Abraham is perhaps best understood by examining the way in which Smith produced other scriptural works, namely the Book of Mormon, the Bible revisions, and his revelations. Speaking of which, Vogel does not dispute the eyewitness testimony that describes Smith reading the translation of the Book of Mormon from the Seer Stone. What, pray, is conventional and straightforward with translating an ancient text on gold plates by looking into a magic rock? So frightfully disruptive and absurd is this notion of translation within the strict confines of secular academe that even the most generous Gentile authorities who write on Joseph Smith today find themselves blushing when asked to account for the affair. Then there is the troublesome fact for Vogel that Joseph Smith described his Bible revision project undertaken between 1830 and 1833 as both a translation and a revelation, and that this translation revelation was done by revising and expanding the English text of the King James Bible, not through a fresh rendering of Hebrew or Greek, as is widely known. And yet we are to believe that this is a conventional translation? So anomalous is the prophet's Bible revision that its very existence has spawned a veritable academic cottage industry of specialists who since at least the mid-20th century have exhausted themselves trying to understand the precise nature of the prophet's revisions to the biblical text and the relationship the final product has with his revelatory method. But our author cannot be bothered by this. Rather than redefining translation to address problems, the problem should tell us that Smith was not translating as he claimed. In other words, Vogel is upset that Joseph Smith did not use the words the way he does, and therefore finds fault with the prophet and his followers who tried to make sense of the texts he produced. Rather than be caught in the uncomfortable position of taking Joseph Smith seriously on his own terms, 
Vogel is content to dismiss the matter as being unworthy of any intellectual curiosity or honest effort to understand. To be sure, we should be wary of the more outlandish postmodernist approaches to understanding Joseph Smith's conception of translation, which attempt to totally decouple the prophet's texts from an underlying ancient source. In that regard, I am actually in agreement with Vogel that one real danger of the catalyst theory, whether for the Book of Abraham or any other of Joseph Smith's scriptural productions, is that one is liable to redefine the meaning of translation as broadly as possible, even to the point that the word loses any significant meaning. The point that Vogel fundamentally misses is that one can formulate a definition of translation and translator that is meaningful in describing Joseph Smith and his scriptural works only by first putting in the minimal amount of effort to understand Joseph on his own terms. This Vogel obstinately refuses to do, because he clearly thinks he knows better than Joseph Smith what Joseph Smith meant by calling his textual outpourings translations. We might be tempted to give Vogel some credit here were it not for his conspicuous habit of writing roughshod over the historical record and imputing into his subject his own assumptions about how a translation must be in order to be worthy of the name. So instead, we turn to Nibley, who wisely observes how the prophet has saved us the trouble of faulting his method by announcing in no uncertain terms that it is a method unique to himself, depending entirely on divine revelation. That places the whole thing beyond the reach of direct examination and criticism, but leaves wide open the really effective means of testing any method, which is by the results it produces. Book of Abraham Parallels, Ancient or Modern As previously mentioned, a sizable portion of Book of Abraham apologetics is devoted to refuting the arguments put forth by apologists and other Latter-day Saint scholars for the Book of Abraham's historicity. Vogel sets out to deal with defensive attempts to support the Book of Abraham's antiquity that draw parallels between unique non-biblical aspects of Abraham's narrative and genuinely ancient Egyptian, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim sources. Vogel concludes that these parallels are invariably weak, misrepresented, or irrelevant, and arguments for ancient historicity overestimate the significance of the evidence and underestimate what Smith's contemporaries knew about non-biblical legends involving Abraham. A powerful claim, to be sure, Defenders of the Book of Abraham's historicity have nothing to offer in defense of the text that, what, that wasn't already known to Joseph Smith's contemporaries, according to Vogel, and they misrepresent the evidence. We might have more confidence in Vogel's verdict if he did not himself routinely demonstrate his inability to provide even a modicum of original argumentation or critical assessment of the evidence. Instead, what he offers in this portion of his book is largely a parade of hand-waving, appealing to authority, and a totally inadequate engagement with both the primary evidence and the secondary literature. A few examples should suffice our purposes here. Abrahamic Traditions As previously mentioned, a substantial portion of Book of Abraham apologetics is dedicated to negating the impressive amount of parallels the Book of Abraham shares with extra-biblical sources. In the eighth chapter, Vogel discusses possible 19th century sources for the English text of the Book of Abraham, specifically potential sources for the first two chapters of the text. Vogel is keen to refute defensive attempts to support the Book of Abraham's antiquity that draw parallels between unique non-biblical aspects of, each of Abraham's narrative and genuinely ancient Egyptian, Jewish, Christian, Muslim sources. In Vogel's opinion, the sources amassed in publications such as Traditions About the Early Life of Abraham are invariably weak, misrepresented, or irrelevant. Instead, Vogel contends that the so-called unique elements in the Book of Abraham, that Abraham's father, Terah, was an idolater, that Abraham was a victim of an attempted sacrifice, 
that Abraham was an astronomer, that Abraham made covenants in Iran, were all known to Joseph Smith's contemporaries and are therefore unimpressive evidence for the text's antiquity. For all the grief he gives apologists for their supposed leaps in reconstructing the chronology of the translation of the Book of Abraham, Vogel has no problem filling the gaps with his own preferred speculation as long as it benefits his predetermined naturalistic conclusions. Vogel wonders, for instance, if Smith may have consulted Bible commentaries such as Methodist Adam Clark's well-known volumes and other theological works in the summer of 1835 to conjure material, brainstorm, to use Vogel's word, for his pseudepigraphic text. Here we encounter a rather curious, if not also comical and totally absurd, portrait of a Joseph Smith who was clever enough to rattle off hundreds of pages of original material for the composition of the Book of Abraham in a matter of weeks, but needed months to mine material in order to compose a measly 45 verses for the Book of Abraham. Vogel similarly cites an 1841 discourse delivered by Joseph Smith as further evidence that Smith had time to think about his pseudepigraphic text, without ever considering the possibility that this material is evidence for precisely the opposite of what Vogel supposes, namely, that the prophet had translated material well beyond the extant text. The reason for this failure of imagination on Vogel's part, of course, is because he needs Joseph Smith to be both a thieving magpie lifting content from Clark and Dick and Josephus, and a quack pseudepigraphist scrambling for time as he strings along his unsuspecting followers. But it was not only contemporary sources that inspired the prophet's fanciful text, according to Vogel. To Smith, this partly intact vignette looked like human sacrifice, and no doubt the attempt to sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham came to mind. How exactly Vogel has divined all this, he does not disclose. Suffice it to say that for him the point is that none of the non-canonical sources compiled by Latter-day Saint scholars has Abraham stabbed or slashed with a knife before being thrown into the fire. He is simply thrown into the fire alive, and a miraculous power preserves him until he emerges. True enough, but in his attempt to turn the Book of Abraham into derivative 19th century pseudepigrapha, Vogel misses something important. If none of the sources well known to Smith's contemporaries portray Abraham as being slaughtered with a knife, then where on earth did the prophet come up with this idea? Vogel may be confident in his ability to read Joseph Smith's mind, but I am not. Vogel must supply us with better evidence than basically a hunch if we are going to follow his line of thinking. What's more, we must insist that Vogel do something more to account for the crucial point raised by Mühlstein. What I found in the few cases of Egyptian sacrifice, human or not, about which we have details, is that typically the sacrificial victim was struck with a blade and then burned. In hindsight, that appears to make perfect sense. It is much easier to burn someone or something when it is already dead. Nearly all animal sacrifices are done this way. This is likely what was intended for Abraham as well, to first be struck with a knife while on the altar, as pictured in the facsimile, and then to be burned. Thus, the Egyptian sources help make sense of the various elements of the Abraham story. Vogel actually cites part of this source, but does nothing to refute Mühlstein's point that what is depicted in the first chapter of the Book of Abraham actually accords better with ancient Egyptian material from Abraham's day, see below, than with the later Judeo-Islamic traditions about the patriarch that were circulating in Joseph Smith's day. Consider also how Vogel handles the Book of Abraham's portrayal of the patriarch as an astronomer. He correctly points out that Josephus, a source available to Joseph Smith, includes brief mention of Abraham's penchant for arithmetic and astronomy, and that Latter-day Saints, unsurprisingly, cited Josephus on occasion. From this, Vogel concludes, 
that it is no surprise that Joseph Smith would include a discussion of astronomy in his account of Abraham in Egypt. Perhaps not, but what is surprising, if we assume Josephus was a major source of Joseph Smith's thinking, is that the latter would depart from the former in some important ways. The book of Abraham implies that Abram reasoned with the Egyptians about astronomy, and while there is certainly a very distinct parallel here between Josephus and Joseph Smith, there are also some key differences in the way they present Abraham teaching astronomy. First off, the book of Abraham relates that the principles of astronomy were given to Abram in a nighttime revelation before he entered Egypt. However, Josephus reports that Abram had already acquired such knowledge while still in Chaldea. Josephus also states that he derived such knowledge through celestial observation, as opposed to revelation, since by nature Abram was naturally very intelligent and somewhat of a prodigy. Second, Josephus frames Abram's presentation of astronomical insights within the context of mathematics, whereas the Book of Abraham never reports that Abram taught mathematics, but instead that he taught the Egyptians astronomy to teach the realities of deity. Finally, in Josephus' account, Pharaoh is never mentioned, and the context presupposes that Abraham taught generally the Egyptians arithmetic and astronomy, whereas the Book of Abraham implies that Abraham taught Pharaoh specifically astronomy. In this respect, the Book of Abraham account is actually closer to an account given by Artapanus, an ancient Jewish author who lived in Egypt sometime before the first century BCE, since he specifically reported that Abraham taught Pharaoh astronomy. These observations are not to minimize the fact that there is significant extra-biblical parallel between Josephus and Joseph Smith, but to suggest some caution before automatically assuming that Josephus has to be the direct source for this parallel, since there are also some important differences. Also, it must be remembered that in Jewish sources from the Second Temple period and Rabbinic period, Abram was widely regarded as an astronomer of sorts, so it is not inconceivable that such information could have been obtained via a source other than Josephus. The most notable aspect of the Book of Abraham's depiction that departs from Josephus and the other usual sources we might suspect if we follow Vogel is the explicit mention of the patriarch possessing and using the Urim and Thummim, which finds deeply intriguing parallel with rabbinic sources unavailable to Joseph Smith and apparently unknown to Vogel. While Vogel does helpfully remind us about the pitfalls of parallelomania, his own reading of the Book of Abraham as nothing more than Joseph Smith's imaginary literary concoction, with some run-of-the-mill 19th century sources thrown into the mix, leaves much to be desired. Human Sacrifice in the Book of Abraham The opening chapter of the Book of Abraham narrates the patriarch's near sacrifice at the hands of an idolatrous priest, which facsimile one of the Book of Abraham visually depicts. According to the text, Abraham's kinsfolk at Ur practiced the custom of offering up upon the altar, which was built in the land of Chaldea, men, women, and children, two strange gods. This custom is called in the text the sacrifice of the heathen and an offering, but never human sacrifice. It was directed by the priest of Elkanah, a northwest Levantine deity attested in Abraham's day, who was also a priest of Pharaoh, meaning evidently a god closely associated with Pharaoh or the office of kingship. This practice is said to have been conducted after the manner of the Egyptians at an altar near a hill that bore an Egyptian name. The text of the Book of Abraham, therefore, depicts what we today might call human sacrifice, a loaded term that requires a lot of unpacking, being practiced at Ur of the Chaldees, wherever that was, in a ritualized setting that to some unspecified degree mimicked an Egyptian custom. Is there any evidence for what is depicted in the Book of Abraham? Specifically, is there evidence that the ancient Egyptians practiced human sacrifice that might have been mimicked by non-Egyptian peoples, such as Abraham's presumed Northwest Semitic or Mesopotamian kinspeople? Vogel answers in the negative, 
Citing Rittner and Woods, who also dismissed the Book of Abraham, Vogel insists that defenders of the Book of Abraham not only persist but overstate their case for the practice of human sacrifice among the ancient Egyptians. A closer look at the issue, however, reveals serious problems with Vogel's claims. Let us first take a look at whether Vogel has fairly represented the argument made by those who affirm the Book of Abraham's historicity. The only piece of apologetic literature Vogel cites on this point are Kerry Muelstein's 2003 dissertation on the subject of sanctioned killing in ancient Egypt and his 2011 article giving a general overview of Book of Abraham issues. Either because he is ignorant of it or because he could not be bothered to include it, Vogel fails to meaningfully engage Muelstein's extensive Egyptological work on the subject of sanctioned killing in ancient Egypt. He also overlooks Muelstein's important 2011 study co-written with Guy that explains the relevance of this body of work for the Book of Abraham. In fact, while Muelstein was only somewhat tentative in the 2011 article cited by Vogel, he would later go on to make a much more forceful argument in subsequent publications. In 2015, for instance, writing in the Journal of Near Eastern Archaeology, published by the prestigious American Schools of Oriental Research, Milton summarized his work on sanctioned killing in ancient Egypt by making the emphatic case that institutionally sanctioned ritual violence in ancient Egypt centered around two main ideas, interference with cult and rebellion. Interference with the cult and rebellion against the established political and thereby religious order is precisely what landed Abraham on the altar according to the first chapter of the Book of Abraham, which Vogel perhaps would have appreciated had he a better command of the relevant literature. Central to the question of whether the ancient Egyptians practiced human sacrifice is the archaeological deposit discovered at the Middle Kingdom fortress of Mergissa. Muelstein and Guy cite this finding as their key witness, observing, Just outside the Middle Kingdom fortress of Mergissa, which had been part of the Egyptian empire in Nubia, a deposit was found containing various ritual objects such as melted wax figurines, a flint knife, and the decapitated body of a foreigner slain during rites designed to ward off enemies. Almost universally, this discovery has been accepted as a case of human sacrifice. Does this concur with the Egyptological consensus? Writing in 2001, Stefan J. Zedelmeyer summarized, The most important find relating to execration rituals of the Middle Kingdom comes from outside the Egyptian fortress at Mirgissa in Lower Nubia. There, a large pit was excavated that contained the remains of more than 175 pottery vessels inscribed with long execration texts. They had been broken intentionally during the ritual. This cache also contained an extensive series of other magical objects, including models of birds, ships, and parts of the human body. The remains of four inscribed limestone figures of captives were also found there that had possibly served as models for the texts on the pots. Careful analysis of the archaeological context revealed the phases of the ritual, during which even a human sacrifice occurred. Zadelmeyer is not alone in this assessment, thus John Coleman, Darnell, and Colleen Manasseh. The interplay of ritual activity and more mundane military activity in the Egyptian world led on at least one occasion to what might be considered human sacrifice, the so-called Mergissa deposit. An intact assemblage from the Middle Kingdom fortress at Mergissa contained the body of an executed man buried in a shallow pit along with a number of broken red clay vessels and several limestone and clay figurines of prisoners and associated images. The deposit appears to reveal the conjunction of three events. One, a ritual called breaking the red vessels, well attested in representations of Egyptian funerary practice. Two, an execration ritual in which certain individuals, both Egyptian and foreign, were ritually damned. Three, finally, the actual execution of a human. At Mergissa, ritual and reality appear to have 
coincided, and a human victim, decapitated and buried upside down, received the treatment meted out to ritual images. One cannot say whether the individual executed was simply chosen at random, the human sacrifice being the primary object of the ritual, or whether, as appears more likely, the deposit represents the religious significance of a ritualized execution that would have taken place on the basis of some military or legal precedent. Most likely, the victim was a Nubian criminal or rebel leader whose execution took on greater cosmic meaning by the application of the execration ritual to his execution. And Perla Fuscaldo. In the Middle Kingdom fortress at Mergissa, figurines and jars were found in situ inside two pits. On three stone statuettes representing prisoners buried in sandy soil and on a large amount of broken pottery placed in a pit, execration texts were written. In another pit, a human skull was found. At Mergissa, not only human figurines and broken pottery, but also human remains were buried, which means that an actual human sacrifice could have been made during this execration ritual. And Emily Teeter. Two other large deposits of execration figurines were found at the Middle Kingdom Fort at Mergissa in Nubia. One consisted of inscribed potsherds and 350 figurines. The other was made up of about 200 fragments of broken red vases bearing inscriptions, ostraca, 346 mud figurines, and three limestone prisoner figurines of bound enemies and the head of another. The malicious intent of the deposit was made clear by the presence of a human sacrifice and by four crucibles supplied to burn and destroy the four prisoner figurines. These vessels are known from religious texts as the furnace of the coppersmiths that consumed enemies. This group shows the extent to which magic was legitimate and accepted, for these deposits were intended to kill enemies of the state. And, most recently, Andrew T. Wilburn. One of the best preserved and archaeologically complete deposits of execration figurines and texts is associated with the military fortress at Mergissa, constructed in the 12th dynasty, perhaps during the reigns of Sesostris II, which served as the bulwark against the Nubian peoples to the south of Egypt. The deposit, which consisted of three separate pits, included 197 inscribed red ceramic vessels, 437 uninscribed red vessels, 346 mud figurines, three figurines in limestone, the head of a fourth figurine, and the remains of a human ritual killing. The bulk of the deposit was placed within a large pit hollowed out in the sand, well away from patterns of movement on the site. The ceramic vessels were shattered prior to being placed in the pit and approximately one-third of the vessels had been inscribed with the names of enemies of the Egyptian state. The fragments of inscribed and uninscribed pots were regularly interspersed with seven layers of mud figurines, with each layer including a specific corpus of items, a headless and bound torso, a severed head or foot, a blinded eye, six or seven models of reed boats, a domesticated animal, a reptile, twelve geese in flight, and a number of unidentified objects. The human figures, or body parts, clearly represent the Nubians, whom the right intended to kill or otherwise destroy. The right also clearly intended the destruction of their herds, the domestic animals, and means of transportation, the boats. The reptile and the geese likely stood for the traditional divine enemies of Egypt, residents of the desert. A second deposit was placed 11 meters away from the first and included the statuettes of three bound prisoners and the head of a fourth. A third deposit consisted of the head of a Nubian victim killed as part of the ritual and buried in the ground on top of a pottery vessel. Around the skull, the excavators discovered traces of red beeswax, presumably the remains of wax figurines that were melted in the performance of the rite. The decapitated body of the Nubian was found a short distance away, 
offering clear evidence that this individual was executed as part of the process. Vogel's appeal to Rittner in his attempt to refute Milstein's work on this matter is rather awkward, considering that Rittner himself described the Mergissa deposit as indisputable evidence for the practice of human sacrifice in classical ancient Egypt. As he explained, Interred about four meters from the central deposit, a skull rested upside down on one half of a broken pottery cup, its mandible missing, and its upper jaw flush with the surface. About the skull were found three small traces of beeswax dyed with red ochre, presumably the remains of melted figurines. Although the cup, which had probably once held the skull, seemed naturally broken, perhaps as a result of burial, an intentionally shattered piece of inscribed red pottery 15 centimeters to the southeast clearly affiliated the find with the ritual of the central deposit. Lying a further 5 centimeters from this broken pottery was a flint blade, the traditional ceremonial knife for ritual slaughter. That the skull derived from ritual sacrifice cannot be denied, as it was the initial discovery of a nearby decapitated and disarticulated skeleton, which had led to the find of the execration assemblage. At Mergissa, the interdependence of rite and execution is expressed concretely by the corpse of the human sacrifice. My point here is not to make an argument from consensus, which is fallacious, but rather to stress that Vogel's nihilistic and uninformed quibbling over whether we call the phenomenon human sacrifice or sanctioned killing or ritual violence or something else obfuscates the fact that Muelstein's work is both firmly within the Egyptological mainstream and amply demonstrates the overall plausibility of the behavior depicted in the first chapter of the Book of Abraham. We can, in fact, answer in the affirmative that there is evidence that the ancient Egyptians of Abraham's day sometimes ritually executed human victims in what not a few Egyptologists sometimes call human sacrifice. The supreme irony in all this, of course, is that the text of the Book of Abraham does not even call the practice described in its pages human sacrifice, nor does it require actual Egyptians in Abraham's homeland committing the deed. It merely requires general knowledge of this Egyptian custom among Abraham's kinsfolk. Vogel has come nowhere close to adequately accounting for the evidence pertaining to this matter. Olishem As early as the mid-1990s, Latter-day Saint scholars have pointed out a plausible candidate for the toponym Olishem mentioned in Abraham chapter 1 verse 10. Inscriptional evidence from Mesopotamia dating to the reign of the Akkadian king Naram-Sin speaks of a certain Ulisi'im, standardized as either Ulisum or Ulishum, but also Ulisum, 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 and Ulis. The location of this Ulisum, Ulishum, most likely lies somewhere west of the Euphrates in southeastern Turkey. But it is difficult to be more specific with the available evidence. Vogel, desperate to neutralize this very promising evidence for the antiquity of the Book of Abraham, is quick to dismiss this correlation. Making this argument requires moving Ur from Chaldea in the south to an unknown location in northern Mesopotamia near Haran, Vogel informs us. What exactly makes it unlikely, he never bothers to explain. I myself have looked carefully at the question of the location of Abraham's Ur, and while the case for a northern location is now ironclad, it is also not out of the question and finds support among non-Latter-day Saint scholars. Because Vogel is completely unequipped to critically engage this issue, he passes the book by once again offhandedly citing Christopher Wood's negative assessment of the proposed identification of Olishem with Ulisum. Vogel appears to be unaware of the fact that more recently at least one non-Latter-day Saint archaeologist working at one of the proposed sites of ancient Ulisum, the Kilis Plain located north of Aleppo across the Turkish border, has suggested a promising though tentative identification with Olishem and its connected plain. 
while a positive identification of the book of Abraham's Olishem with Ulisum is still currently beyond definitive proof, it is nevertheless a viable and promising candidate, despite Vogel's feeble objections. Shineha. The third chapter of the book of Abraham furnishes the names Shineha and Olea as meaning the sun and the moon, respectively. Whatever language these two words are supposed to have derived from, however, is left unspecified. In 1936, J.E. Homans, writing under the pseudonym R.C. Webb, felt that neither of them resembles a word of Egyptian origin, and argued that Shineha derived from such a verb root as Shana, meaning to shine, to brighten, although, as spelled here, it is unfamiliar. Homans' argument to link Shineha with a Semitic root, however, is not persuasive. In 2010, Hugh Nibley and Michael D. Rhodes proposed a reconstructed Egyptian etymology for Shineha as deriving from the elements Shanu and Nehe. While this appears plausible, it remains unattested and is a conjectural reconstruction. Matthew Gray has most recently suggested that Shineha, like Olea, instead derives from Smith's previous work on the pure language of Adam, and therefore should not be seen as deriving from any extant ancient tongue. Vogel, as would be expected, weighs in on the matter by dismissing Shenoha as an invented name that belongs with the other codenames created for the 1835 first edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. He additionally disputes the arguments made by Guy and others that Shenoha in Abraham 3.13 indicates the translation of the Book of Abraham extended beyond the extant Kirtlera manuscripts, which end at Abraham 2.18. Vogel's protestations notwithstanding, I am not convinced that we can definitively resolve the issue pertaining to the presence of Shineha in the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants and Abraham 3.13, and what the implications of such are for the chronology of the translation of the latter. What I do wish to emphasize here is the point previously made by Guy. Some, like Vogel, might hypothesize that the term Shineha was borrowed into the Book of Abraham from its use in the Doctrine and Covenants. This hypothesis assumes that the Book of Abraham is a modern fictional work written by Joseph Smith. The assumption, though unstated, is essential for the argument to be comprehensible. The problem with the assumption is that this term in the Book of Abraham is a known Egyptian term. He is referring to the attested Egyptian word from the time of Abraham for the sun's ecliptic, Shenecha. This word and its cosmological significance for the ancient Egyptians is both a phonetic and a broadly conceptual match with what is found in Abraham 3, and accordingly, if one accepts that the Book of Abraham is ancient, then the simplest explanation is that the Doctrine and Covenants borrows from the Book of Abraham. If, on the other hand, one follows Vogel and argues that the Book of Abraham borrows from the Doctrine and Covenants, then one assumes the Book of Abraham is modern, but one must still explain how it contains an authentic Egyptian term whose existence was unknown to Western scholarship until 1882. Because he does not know Egyptian, and by his own admission does not care to bother with the Egyptian sources in assessing the authenticity of the Book of Abraham, Vogel's treatment neglects to account for this significant evidence. Miscellaneous Issues There are a multitude of miscellaneous issues relative to the Book of Abraham that Vogel raises in Book of Abraham Apologetics, which should not be dismissed or avoided. The following sections examine just three of these issues. Race, the Priesthood Ban, and the Book of Abraham. The issue of race in the Book of Abraham and the nature of the priesthood curse described in Abraham 1, 23-27 is one that will likely continue to provoke strong feelings, especially among readers living in the United States who are still grappling with the deeply regrettable legacy of anti-black racism in America. The sad reality is that historically, and in some lingering cases even today, Latter-day Saints have used the Book of Abraham to justify racist policies and attitudes chief among them the pre-1978 prohibition on men of African descent from holding the priesthood, 
and the restriction of both men and women of African descent from participating in temple ordinances. Although contemporary leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have officially rejected attempts to use scriptural justification for these past racist policies and teachings, this does not change the unfortunate ways in which Latter-day Saints have used scripture in what can charitably be called deeply flawed and misapplied readings. As would be expected, Vogel sees the Book of Abraham as the product of Joseph Smith's 19th century racist ideas about the origins of people of African descent. As Vogel correctly notes, a number of Joseph Smith's contemporaries, like generations of Christians before the 19th century, read certain passages in the Book of Genesis, such as the enigmatic story of Noah cursing his son Ham in Genesis 9, and details about the descendants of Ham in the so-called Table of Nations in Genesis chapter 10, verses 6-20, to justify the enslavement of people of African descent. For Vogel, Joseph Smith's scriptural productions are merely the outgrowth of these racist theories. As early as 1831, Vogel writes, Smith's revelations explained that the mark God had put upon Cain for murdering his brother Abel was black skin. To support this, Vogel cites Moses 7, verses 8 and 22, which speak of how in vision the prophet Enoch saw that the Lord shall curse the land with much heat and the barrenness thereof shall go forth forever. And there was a blackness came upon all the children of Canaan, and they were despised among all people. And he beheld the residue of the people, which were the sons of Adam, and they were a mixture of all the seed of Adam, save it was the seed of Cain, for the seed of Cain were black, and had no place among them. He likewise draws attention to Joseph Smith's revision or translation of Genesis 9, KJV, chapter 9, verses 25-26, which reads, And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant, and a veil of darkness shall cover him, that he shall be known among all men. As Vogel goes on to argue, the book of Abraham merely amplified Joseph Smith's racist predilections enshrined in his prophetic engagement with the biblical text. In the intervening years, between working on his Bible revision and dictating the text of the book of Abraham, Smith modified his ideas about the origin of the black race. The most glaring problem with Vogel's argument, of course, is that these passages say positively nothing about Cain's descendants having black skin. If, as Vogel believes, Joseph Smith was conjuring the contents of his new translation of the Bible from his own mind, there was nothing to stop him from explicitly making black skin the mark of Cain's descendants. But the text never actually does this. Instead, it uses the much more abstract blackness and darkness to describe the people. Vogel infers that Moses chapter 7 verse 8 seems to allude to Africa, but provides no justification for this reading beyond his own supposition. What's more, the opening chapter of the book of Moses subverts Vogel's reading and supports the notion that the blackness of the children of Cain and Canaan, and later the veil of darkness over Canaan, was not skin pigmentation, but a withdrawal of glory of God from among the people. Moses chapter 1 verse 15 describes how Moses could detect Satan's deception because the latter's glory was darkness unto him compared to God's own incomparable glory. In OT1, this passage reads that Satan's glory was blackness unto Moses, thus providing a clear thematic link with Enoch's prophecy later in Moses 7. This, of course, is in strict keeping with ancient Jewish idiom, which uses blackness to describe evildoers, demons on their realm, and those who are in a spiritually benighted state. Ironically, Vogel is imposing on the text of both the Book of Moses and the Book of Abraham the same racist misreading that Latter-day Saints after Joseph Smith's death imposed on these texts. 
The glaring problem for Vogel and others who wished to portray Joseph Smith as imbibing in commonplace 19th century American racism with his scriptural productions is that there is no contemporary evidence that the prophet ever appealed to either the Book of Moses or the Book of Abraham in his racial thinking. Indeed, there is no evidence that during his lifetime, Joseph Smith or any of his followers cited the Book of Abraham to deny black Mormon men the priesthood. Vogel admits that how the Book of Abraham's teachings applied to Smith's church and the priesthood Smith established was never explicitly stated during Smith's lifetime, which is a bashful way of conceding that there was no actual evidence for this reading that he merely assumes must have originated with the prophet. While not addressing slavery directly, Vogel writes, the Book of Abraham supports the white supremacist ideology of slave owners. This bizarre claim is made all the stranger by the fact left unaddressed, but certainly known by Vogel, that Joseph Smith not only approved of the ordination of at least two black men to the priesthood, Elijah Abel and Q. Walker Lewis, but also that he ran on an anti-slavery platform during his 1844 presidential bid. Vogel correctly observes that in April 1836, in what was probably a move to distance the Latter-day Saints from the more radical antebellum abolitionist movement, and to ameliorate the tense situation with the pro-slavery Missourians, Joseph Smith published an anti-abolitionist editorial in The Messenger and Advocate. What Vogel seems not to appreciate, however, is that with this editorial, Joseph had the perfect opportunity to use his supposedly racist scripture to bolster his case. But he didn't. Instead, he quoted the KJV rendering of Genesis chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, not the Book of Abraham, and not even his own translation of the same passage, the one Vogel thinks is clear proof of the prophet's racist thinking. Vogel never stops to ask why. I can only assume that this is because Vogel has already come to the conclusion that as 19th century texts, the Book of Moses and the Book of Abraham must necessarily reflect their racist 19th century environments. As with his utterly far-fetched attempt to use the issue of race in the Book of Abraham to attribute the authorship of the grammar and alphabet to Joseph Smith, his attempt to depict the Book of Abraham as projecting a white supremacist ideology is entirely unconvincing. Suffice it to say that more reasonable, informed treatments of this topic should be sought elsewhere. Joseph Smith as a student of Hebrew. Hebrew terminology appears in both the text of the Book of Abraham and in some of Joseph Smith's explanations to the text's accompanying facsimiles. Additionally, the creation account preserved in Abraham 4 and 5 in some ways appears to reflect a knowledge of Hebrew. For instance, the rendering of expanse at Abraham chapter 4 verse 6 as opposed to firmament of Genesis 1 verse 6 for the word rakiah. Since there is no evidence that Joseph Smith knew Hebrew in any meaningful sense before late January 1836, this raises questions about both the nature and chronology of the translation of the Book of Abraham. As would be expected, scholars are divided on the ramifications of the presence of this Hebrew terminology in the Book of Abraham. A significant part of the debate revolves around whether the presence of Hebrew words in the third chapter of the Book of Abraham indicates this portion of the text was translated after January 1836. On the one side of the argument is Matthew Gray, who has recently affirmed that the presence of Hebrew terminology in the Book of Abraham is indicative that the text of Abraham 3-5 was composed after 1836. On the other side is Kerry Muelstein, who, along with his co-author Megan Hansen, argues that the Hebrew phrases in the Book of Abraham are evidence of Joseph Smith's editorial preparation and revision, but not the composition of the text post-1836. Although he himself does not know Hebrew, Vogel weighs in on this subject and argues that the last three chapters of Abraham bear the marks of Smith's Hebrew lessons with Satius in early 1836, which he insists creates a problem for defenders who require that the entirety of the Book of Abraham translation must precede 
both the composition of the Gale and Joseph Smith's Hebrew lessons. None of Vogel's counterarguments to Muehlstein's and Hansen's thesis appear especially fatal in my judgment, as they largely rest on assumptions about certain behavior expected by Joseph Smith, or on readings of historical sources that are particularly suited to Vogel's need to downplay or otherwise refute his interlocutor's own conclusions. In any case, a much more robust, comprehensive, and informed treatment of Joseph Smith's study of Hebrew can be found in Gray, who has both the advantage of not sharing Vogel's ideological handicaps and an actual working knowledge of the languages involved in this subject. For now, I am interested in reiterating what Vogel never bothers to explain in his treatment, how Joseph Smith was able to capture authentic ancient concepts with only an elementary understanding of Hebrew, and while under the tutelage of a teacher who openly balked at the ideas advanced in the Book of Abraham and the Prophet's sermons. As Vogel correctly observed, Joseph Smith learned that the Hebrew noun Elohim is technically a plural form from his Hebrew studies. What Joseph Smith does not adequately account for is how this rudimentary understanding not only supposedly gave Joseph Smith the wherewithal to concoct an elaborate cosmology for the Book of Abraham, but how this cosmology could anticipate the findings of secular scholarship by several decades. As I myself and others have shown, the Book of Abraham's depiction of the divine council and a plurality of gods is firmly at home in the ancient world. Vogel never addresses any of this, and in his regrettable habit of missing the forest for the trees, instead contents himself with arguing over minutiae with apologists on the chronology of the production of the English text. But regardless of when the text was produced, that it captures authentic ancient concepts cannot be denied, and is wholly remarkable. The ways Joseph Smith deploys his knowledge of Hebrew in the Book of Abraham and in other teachings cannot simply be a matter of the prophet heedlessly repackaging a few things he picked up from Joshua Satius. Instead, while Joseph Smith clearly deferred to his various textbooks on several points, sometimes preferring one resource over another, there were other instances in which his own examination of the papyri, developing theology, and revelations merged with his creative use of less conventional Hebrew definitions or technicalities, thus allowing him to tease out unique theological concepts and produce a distinctively expansive translation. The Cosmology of the Book of Abraham the cosmology described in the third chapter of the Book of Abraham has proven to be an irresistible fascination for writers since at least the 19th century. Following his earlier work from the 1990s, Vogel offers his own views on the cosmology of the Book of Abraham in the fifth chapter of his book. The two main arguments that Vogel drives home with his treatment on the cosmology of Abraham III are that the cosmology is not ancient and that it borrows from contemporary 19th century astronomical and theological speculation. The Book of Abraham's cosmology was not what one would expect from an ancient author, Vogel insists. Instead, the mix of contemporary astro astronomy and theological concerns of the 19th century resulted in a cosmology in the text that is as foreign to 21st century readers of Smith's texts as ancient Hebrew cosmology was to Smith and his contemporaries. What interests me with Vogel's approach to the cosmology of the Book of Abraham is not his wholly speculative arguments for its dependence on the Egyptian grammar documents, nor his rehashing of the tired claim that Joseph Smith was dependent on the writings of Thomas Dick, nor his ignoring the fact that learned contemporaries dismissed it as absurd and contrived, which is strange indeed if the system is wholly derivative of 19th century thinking. Instead, I am interested in his attempt to refute the reading of the cosmology of Abraham III that sees the system as geocentric. Specifically, Vogel takes issue with the arguments made in a groundbreaking 2005 study conducted by John Gee, William J. Hamblin, and Daniel Peterson. Vogel is eager to refute this model for understanding Abraham III because it fundamentally undercuts his belief that the Book of Abraham is a modern pseudepigraphon influenced by Dick and other 19th century theologian cosmologists. 
In his haste to refute Guy, Hamblin, and Peterson, however, Vogel ends up committing the same infractions he lays at the feet of his opponents. He also fails to account for other models for Abraham III, such as Mulesteins, that also plausibly situate the text in the ancient world. Crucially, Vogel fails to explain how his model accounts for the fact that Abraham III has the earth upon which Abraham standest as the patriarch's point of reference for reckoning the movement of the celestial bodies being viewed above him. The plainest reading of these two verses, at the very least, strongly point to the likelihood that the text is describing a geocentric cosmos from Abraham's, the narrator's, vantage. Of special interest in this discussion is what to do with one Middle Kingdom text that seems especially germane to the cosmology of Abraham III. The significance of the couplet shown in figure 4 holds for royal ideology, and the idea of cosmic dominion is fairly clear, both from the excerpted passage below and from other examples. And both Guy and Mulestein have perceptively noted the significance it holds for Abraham III. Much less clear is what it might tell us about how the ancient Egyptians envisioned their cosmos and what bearing that may have on the argument that Abraham III reflects a geocentric cosmos. Wahem senejek em ta'u chasut, wafenek senenet iten. While Leonard Lesko disavows the idea that the very common phrase, Shenet Iten, and its equivalents reflect a geocentric cosmos, more recently, Joanne Kahneman has problematized Lesko's reading by pointing out that he neglects to consider the precise manner in which the Egyptians tracked the movement of celestial bodies, including the sun. In any case, it is clear that what the sun encircles in the Egyptian cosmic view includes the earth, the rule world by the pharaoh, and Vogel does not do justice to the issue with his dismissive footnote. Conclusion, taking stock. None of the leading theories of Book of Abraham historicity exhibits an accurate understanding of the Joseph Smith Egyptian papers. So writes Vogel at the curtain call of Book of Abraham Apologetics. For a study that boasts to be nothing more than a sober-minded work of history, it is truly telling that Vogel spends most of his conclusion recapitulating his grievances with apologetic theories, getting in one final dig at the last stand of one school of Abraham apologetics, and injects a bit of theology for good measure. In any case, Vogel again entreats us to abandon the apologetics of yesteryear and embrace Joseph Smith as a saintly liar, who believed himself authorized by God to use misdirection, deception, to promote greater faith in his inspired pseudepigrapha. The Book of Abraham in Vogel's final ruling is a modern forgery that Joseph Smith used to lend ancient support to several of his doctrinal innovations not clearly discussed in the Bible. Although in this review I have been highly critical of Book of Abraham apologetics, I want to conclude by reiterating that I actually do appreciate that Vogel has offered a fairly systematic attempt to account for the origin and contents of the Book of Abraham from a metaphysically naturalistic or atheistic perspective that, however woefully inadequate, takes the text seriously enough to undertake such a project. I commend Vogel for giving his Latter-day Saint apologist foes enough courtesy to at least spare us the sort of patronizing, glib dismissiveness that has marred the work of past skeptics. I mean this sincerely when I say that if one is looking for a secular accounting of the Book of Abraham that begins with the conclusion that Joseph Smith could not, and therefore did not, translate ancient records by the power of God, you have a fairly decent example in the form of Book of Abraham apologetics. This, however, is about all I can say positively for the book. It is apparent throughout Book of Abraham Apologetics that while Vogel is certainly better informed than most critics, his work nevertheless suffers from what at times is a painfully obvious lack of the prerequisite ability needed to tackle most of the issues he contends with. To put it bluntly, in the reappropriated words of Richard Lloyd Anderson, 
Vogel is in no position to say whether the Book of Abraham is more like the 19th century than the ancient world that it chronicles. A student of the 19th century like Vogel may indeed find parallels with this period and the Book of Abraham, but without a knowledge of the world of antiquity, he simply is not equipped to make a judgment whether the Book of Abraham resembles more Joseph Smith's environment or the ancient culture it claims to represent. Lest I misunderstood, let me be clear what I am and am not claiming. Vogel, as I have shown in this review, is incapable of adequately dealing with the ancient evidence for the Book of Abraham, and therefore most of his objections to the work of his apologists and interlocutors is spurious. This is simply because he is deficient in the specialized training needed to do such. Consequently, he can only consider a 19th century origin for the book, both because his ideological position requires it and because his inability to handle the ancient sources means that he is incapable of critically assessing the evidence for the ancient origin of the book. It is furthermore very obviously the reason why he is adamant that the only discipline needed to assess the authenticity of the book of Abraham just so happens to be the one discipline in which he has any expertise. This does not automatically make Vogel's arguments wrong, but it does make them deeply suspect. I am not saying that Vogel is simply wrong because he doesn't have the necessary training, but rather that Vogel's arguments are deficient because he doesn't actually carefully consider all the evidence, and uncritically relies on others to make his predetermined case against the historicity of the Book of Abraham for him. If I may reapply Vogel's own words, his claims are not supported by the documentation, but instead result from his need to make the facts fit their theories. One final question to consider before we conclude is to ask how we should frame the Book of Abraham, or which presumption we should let prevail as we approach the text. The first option is to presume, like Vogel, that because there is no good reason to believe in the supernatural, the book of Abraham must therefore be something other than what Joseph Smith said it was, and the evidence examined in that light. The second, and in my judgment superior option, is to exercise a particle of faith that the book of Abraham is actually what it is and its translator claim it to be and not to reflexively dismiss the evidence for its authenticity just because it may not always be as direct as we would wish, or just because doing so might force us to ask difficult metaphysical questions about the existence of Revelation and the reality of Joseph Smith's Syriac gift. This approach, which Hunibly articulated well for the Book of Mormon in the 1950s, is admittedly not without its shortcomings, and asks much in the way of intellectual and metaphysical commitment of those who would entertain it but it is far better at making sense of the relevant facts pertaining to the coming forth of the book of Abraham, to say nothing of the text itself. This has been a recording of Framing the Book of Abraham, Presumptions and Paradigms, by Stephen O. Smoot, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume 47, 2021, read by Stephen O. Smoot. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited, and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.